0: This episode contains frank discussion of alcoholism and immorality and may not be suitable for younger listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Monica. I'm from Highland Village, Texas. I'm a social worker in the medical field. I love Compelled because episode after episode is a story of God's love for us through individual lives. My family has been through some strain over the last year and a half. These stories give me so much hope and are reminders that God is there always and that His work and goodness will prevail.
1: 0.45 is death, 0.08 is DUI, I blew 0.4, I was on the verge of dying from the alcoholism. I'm in bondage to this, mighty bondage.
0: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. Last week, our guest was Jamie Kent, who as a young child saw his entire world fall apart in just a matter of minutes. Yet as his earthly family imploded, little did he know that a heavenly father was watching from above. Again, you can hear that story by tuning into last week's episode with Jamie Kent. Today, our guest is Stu Fullendorf, a staunch atheist and alcoholic with a tremendous success record in the marketplace. But during a booze-filled trip around the world, he couldn't shake the idea, what if God actually was real? So gather around and lean in and join us for another compelling story from the Kingdom of God. Earlier this summer, I sat down with Stu at his church right outside Denver. The church is beautifully situated overlooking a valley with the Rocky Mountains in the distance. And it's about 90 minutes away from where Stu grew up in Greeley, Colorado. His parents weren't Christians and neither was he. Maybe God existed, maybe he didn't, but what difference did it make? And by the time he reached high school though, Stu decided he was an atheist. When Stu's parents divorced when he was 14, he threw himself into schoolwork and athletics. And while his high school friends liked to party, Stu wasn't interested. But that began to change during his freshman year of college.
1: I was very dedicated up to that point, and there was a a dorm party. So if you talk about key points of my life, and we'll talk about why this was key. I was a freshman in college, and Dollar Bill Anderson was having a party on the floor of our dorm and said, hey, taste some of this uh, peppermint schnapps. And I had always avoided any alcohol. In fact, I condemned people in high school that drank. And finally, I'm like, oh, OK. So I tasted the peppermint schnapps. And you know that you've got problems with alcohol right out of the chute, when that was one of the key things I remember in my life, is how I felt after I drank about three or four shots of that peppermint schnapps, running up and down the hall, yelling, wow, this is you know almost out of control. So already a seemingly a predisposition towards you know a love for alcohol. And so that started my freshman year in in college, and uh, so I loved the way it felt when I was drinking. I liked alcohol to celebrate. I liked alcohol to mask the pain. It never got to a point where there was any um, change of how or when I would use alcohol. I just liked it, and so I was filling that empty hole in the heart a lot from about the time I was 18 years old forward, and more and more and more as the years went on. And so then. Sports became less important to me. And and so literally, alcohol really became an important part of my life. Even today, I could go, if I had a couple of martinis, I might be off to the races because I liked it. So alcohol became a bigger and bigger part of my life. And you know, in the world, as a non-Christian, I I saw it as a key aspect of my identity, uh, both in terms of how I was dealing with people having lunches over cocktails or with business leaders. And I don't know, sometimes I think of it a a little bit like a a musician that uses drugs or alcohol to write good music. It almost becomes such an integral part of who you are that that's actually how it became with me. And so I was not only a functional alcoholic, I saw it as a useful tool in in my life. Just to be clear, you're going to hear a lot
0: about alcohol in this episode, and it factored pretty heavily into Stu's life. Four years later, Stu graduated with a degree in social sciences and shortly afterwards met his future wife, Trish, at a bar in Colorado. They began dating and got married 11 months later. Trish got a job as an aerospace engineer in California, and Stu decided to enroll in the MBA
1: program at the University of San Diego. It was amazing for me. It felt like an extension of my upcoming career. We made some great friends, but I reflect back then and see, as an example, how important alcohol was even then. I know that's a central theme, but it's central because it's actually helped lead me to a greater understanding of God. And so, even whilst my wife would work and I would go to, to school and and you know pour my heart and soul into the studies, then in the evenings we would go out with friends and we would hang out at Pacific Beach and other things, and I would just drink till people would almost would literally would have to put me in the the car and my wife would drive home and. I was drinking way too much even then as a 25, 26-year-old you know, MBA student. You know, It was just kind of an accepted behavior, if you will, again, even within the business students. Now, I think I was a bigger drinker and got drunker and some of those things more than a lot of the students did. But no, I never had anybody that I can recall come up to me and say, do you think maybe you're drinking a little bit too much? Trisha will tell you, nor did she ever say that to me. She just thought it was just kind of a partying behavior. Trish was not a Christian she would call herself a a forced Roman Catholic forced to go to mass her dad went to uh, undergraduate in law school Notre Dame and so there so. There was really no talk in our house. Um, even, even whether it was against God or, or uh, pro-God, there was really no talk in our house whatsoever because her experience as a Roman Catholic was really quite shallow. And she didn't read the Bible. She didn't really spend any time um, reflecting on her own spiritual life. No, not at all. And Sundays were just a time where, as an example, we would just go out and go play volleyball or, or spend time together. But there was no talk of God at that time in our household. Stu graduated from business school in
0: 1989, and they moved back to Colorado, where Trish got another job as an aerospace engineer for Lockheed Martin. Stu, on the other hand, became the controller at a brand new casino that was opening up underneath Colorado's newly legalized gambling laws. After two years working at the casino, it began to wear on Stu. Not that he felt any moral compunction about the business, but watching senior citizens spend their social security checks in his slot machines all day long just became old and felt kind of pointless. He wanted a new challenge, and one was opening up in his hometown of Greeley. A technology manufacturing company was looking for a chief financial officer, or a CFO, and Stu got the job
1: business starts booming in 1992. Again, I remember just like yesterday, sitting in a bar at 10 o'clock at night with a literally cocktail napkin in front of me with the CEO and the founder of the company. And we're writing strategy and business plans on the back of a cocktail napkin while I'm sitting there drinking Jack Daniels. And you know, I happen to be I'm working with some guys that were pretty heavy drinkers too. So I fit in perfectly. They fit in perfectly. We actually loved each other and alcohol was a big component of that, but So there's a social aspect of that, too, right? Of people getting along around things that are common, a common worldview. Uh, None of them are Christian, um, all drinkers, all really smart. By 94, we were getting to the point. We were growing so much that we were able to take the company public. The company boomed. I became a member of the board of trustees, the board of uh, foundation board of the University of Northern Colorado. I'm 32 years old. I'm getting all kinds of accolades and good things happening, starting to make big bucks. So had a mahogany bar built in the basement of my house that I bought on the golf course. First thing I did was built a bar. It tells you where your priorities are. And and from a worldly perspective, good things happening. By 96, um, the company kind of hit a plateau and brought in a new CEO. Um, I was the head, not only CFO, but head of all corporate development. So we did nine mergers and acquisitions in three years at the company. We grew from 300 employees to about 1,400 by 1998, 99. Nine different locations, two international. We were named the number one public company in 1996 um, by the Denver Post in Colorado. And in, and it was actually in 1996, 97 during that time period where we were kind of at the peak, where we moved the headquarters to Denver from where we were in Greeley. Um, we bought a big home up in Evergreen, Colorado. Some of your um, listeners won't know, but big, big home. My drinking habits increased, and my, my attitude about God um, got more antagonistic uh again the self-sufficiency now and as i am starting to get gain some worldly experience and success and starting to make more money and getting stock options i'm still not making huge money but starting to really see the the gold at the end of the rainbow here all that happened with me is i became more self-sufficient more prideful um and less uh, willing to hear about god because i'm I'm becoming my own god, little g. And that's exactly where we were. And then I started making enough money as a CFO then that Trish could actually take a step back. She really wanted to stay home and take care of the kids. And I can assure you, I wasn't ambivalent about that either. I wanted to be married to a, a professional engineer type. And the idea that she would stay home, all I could do is calculate the present value of the loss of the future cash flows of our income. And so we started having even some conflict over the fact that I wanted her to keep working. And she wanted to stay home and take care of the kids. The
0: mixture of success at work but strained family life at home and Stu's constant need for alcohol wasn't getting any better. In fact, it was getting worse. And while everyone else thought that Stu was living the dream, there was one person in his life who could tell that everything wasn't
1: as wonderful as it seemed on the outside. His wife, Trish. So she saw me continuing to drink more and more as I was getting more and more of what I thought I wanted, she saw me becoming more and more unhappy, which is always ironic because everything that I thought I wanted, I was getting it. And so she was really struggling with our marriage. She's like, I thought this is what you wanted and yet you're not happy. You're drinking more and more. I don't know. I said, I don't know what to tell you. Um, Would I you be- have described yourself as unhappy? I'd say fairly angry man. Um, Times of happiness, but fairly angry, which then helped me fit right in as a CFO, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, willing to buy companies and, you know, merge companies together and fire people. And at the time I would say, you know, if you guys are got a problem with firing people as we bring these companies together, I'll do it. So that's kind of where I was. And I did. I really felt a sense of I'm getting everything I wanted, but, you know, I don't feel joy over this. I don't feel happy. Well, I, when my wife went to see a pastor. Church called Rockland Community Church in, in Golden, Colorado. Reverend Ken Williams, he just got a hold of me a few weeks ago. He's retired now. And Trish went and talked to him, to Pastor Ken, and went in with a whole list of questions. And say things like hey if i become a christian can i still go to the little bear bar and have some drinks <laughs> right i mean you know things that you're like uh, seriously this is what you're asking but yeah i mean this is what people think about like when they think about christians right can yeah. i still smoke a cigar like i'll come you know yeah. it, licentiousness versus legalism and she had all these questions and and ken did a good job answering said but told her there's a women's retreat this weekend. Why don't you go to it? And Trish actually had a friend, just so happened, a sorority sister of hers, who was going to that retreat. So Trish went to the retreat and was saved in really a pool of snot and tears. And so, yeah, that was, I think, 97. I think there were two things that kept us together. On my side, it was the devastation of seeing my mom married numerous times and the devastation of the pain of divorce that happened to me with a commitment. like I really um, I really don't want to be divorced. Even then, not being a Christian, it's like if we think there's the grass is going to be greener on the other side, it just isn't. Um, and anybody who goes through divorce, you just know. I mean, it just never goes well. And then on Trisha's side, she really wanted to divorce me many times. Um, but she never demanded it or never did because she, and again, this is holy God in her life, really was more focused on growing in holiness and her relationship with Christ than me being her God, or or her identity being around the millions of dollars that we may have had at the time. So that's kind of how she was at the time. So she wanted to get divorced numerous times, but she simply was more focused on her relationship and the word of God. I have no doubt that even from a biblical perspective, if you talk about abandonment and other reasons to get divorced, she could have rationalized, hey, I'm not gonna be married to an alcoholic. I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm married to a non-believer. We were equally yoked in our non-belief before, but now we're unequally yoked. Now, in fact, at this time, I mean, Trish is taking care of the kids. I'm probably working 60, 80 hours a week. And if I wasn't working, I was spending time at the bar um, or flying all over the world, you know, flying first class. Even if I didn't have to fly first class, I'd fly first class, because I got drinks in those days. I got to drink as much as I, as I could in first class. There are times, just, just so you know, Paul, that I could have had a, a telephone call with somebody, and I'd still go fly to see them. You know, uh, just so that I could sit in first class and and drink and act like a big wig. It was probably a year or two later when I noticed she was reading the Bible and she was going to church without me. I didn't even know she was going to church. So did she tell you like, hey, I became a Christian? Like, No. In fact, she knew that I would react pretty harshly. Again, I wasn't ambivalent. But she was definitely growing in faith. And I could see her starting to change. She had a mysterious piece about her that was interesting and actually angered me where things would bother her before, she wouldn't say God is sovereign, but there was this sense of God's got this, uh, you know, where I would get angry, like, you know, gonna, and she would just say, "Hey, you know, just calm down. Everything's good. Everything will work out, right? Things like that, where you just start noticing. And I, I was noticing. And she'll tell you this, she was really focused a lot more on her own holiness than her happiness. She loves to say that, that her relationship with God became so preeminent in her life that Happiness wasn't as important as her sanctification or her holiness. So her her prayers were really around God move in. Um, Holy Spirit changes heart. But for the first few years, it was like, how come you're not getting this? Why don't you know if we ever had any conversations? And then as she grew in her understanding of the word, she really started saying, hey, you know, we need God to move in here. And that's really how her. How her life changed more and more, and there was even a greater and greater piece. As, as my life was spiraling out of control, more and more drinking, even as things were going well, seemingly on paper, she just kept praying, you know, Lord, just bring him to you, bring him. And so that's how she would pray for me. Just a few years later, Stu's frustration with
0: life in general led him to seek out a new job as the CFO of another startup tech company, this time based in Seattle, where Stu moved his family. The company successfully ipo would in 2000 and Stu was, again, awash in success and wealth. But then the dot-com
1: bubble burst and the company,
0: just like many others at the time, went bankrupt.
1: I was drinking a lot to medicate the pain. It's like, this is the first real huge failure I felt. And now now you look back, it's like everybody was floating in the same lake. But it didn't matter. It just felt like a failure. So, yeah, I, I left as the company was unwinding and took about six months and then was hired to do investment banking at a firm called Lincoln International out of Chicago. And I did that for two years and hated it. I wanted to be the boss. I didn't like consulting. I wanted to be the boss. So I did that for a couple of years, flying back and forth between my home in Seattle and Chicago. I would fly out like Sunday Red Eye, drink, fall asleep, get into Chicago on Monday morning kick in starting to do mergers and acquisition deals as an as an investment banker and did, would do that for a week or two had an apartment in river north and i would fly back to seattle and i did that for a couple of years and that's where my alcoholism really started to spiral really more, and more by that time yeah really yeah because it was the late night flights time in the airports spending time by myself in chicago we were going to move the family to chicago and they're, ah, i'm not sure about that and in all, in all of this. And it was actually in that time period then, in 2003, after the failure and all that, where I actually went to church for the first time with my wife in Seattle. The first time? First time, yeah, 2003. She found a church, 2000, and f- absolutely fell in love. So for about two or three more years, she's like, hey, I found this church, there's a guy preaching, I think you'd really like him. We have life groups, will you come to life groups? No, I'm not gonna go to life group. I don't even know what a life group is, community group, It's you know, don't even know what it is. I'm um, not going to go. And so finally, by 2003, after the metal wave busting and being about halfway through and really, again, being really miserable, uh, making money as an investment banker, she's like, why don't you come to church with me? And she'd ask me that. If so I'm like, okay, Trish, listen, um, I'm not happy. I'll come to church. So that was 2003, April of 2003. So 19 years ago. And... I went to church and the sermon I heard absolutely ticked me off. (laughs) Uh, The sermon was on predestination and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I've never heard anybody preach like this, like scream and yell. And um, the things that he's saying about God is in control. I remember at the end of the sermon, he said, and for all you middle aged guys out there, if you don't understand this, you're not God. And he barked about three times, you're not God. And I literally remember like yesterday thinking, how dare him, right? Bark at me like that. And also thinking, I can't wait to come back next week to hear what he has to say. So, again, I don't know what a seeker friendly church, I don't, I don't even know what that term is. But I know that the being barked at um, something, God started wooing me. So I did. I started going to church whenever I could with Trish. I was gone about half the time to Chicago, but I'd come back and go to church with her and about half the time it ticked me off. Um, but the gospel was intriguing me. It was like, what do you call it? Heart softening. It was starting to like, okay, I'm interested in this. It was sort of like I was interested in atheism. So again, by this time I'm 41 years old, right? This is 2003 and I'm still reading Christopher Hitchens, Sam, Sam Harris and all these guys. But I'm also thinking, you know, the deeper and deeper I get into this, the harder it is to rationalize the difficulty of understanding that there is no creator. Like, all I have to do is look at creation and understand that there's a creator. I mean, you know, there's got to be something, right? There's some intelligence into this, seemingly, right? Unless you believe in the billions and billions of to one kind of cosmic accident. But I never really heard a true gospel, a true Christian worldview. Um, And then Trish asked me to go to the community group and finally I did and I was like the only non-Christian in the community group and um, loved it. I mean, I loved the the sense of community and the otherworldly feeling to the community group. Um, There was an 80 year old truck driver and his wife. Now I realize they were evangelizing to me, but what they're really doing is just answering questions and telling me things that got my head head spinning a little bit. I remember having these conversations, you mean from the foundations of the world that got out of plan? Like, how do how do we even explain eternity? Like, come on, that can't be, I have free will. And he would say things like, you know, did you think you burned yourself? Well, of course not. Well, then you really don't, you really don't have free will, do you? I mean, you didn't have free will to just born yourself, did you? So, you know, again, the answers were profound enough. So yeah, it was very intriguing to me. I remember there was a guy named Alan Hartman who um, got up at church. They're talking about his drinking problems and about how his career became his identity, but now his identity is in Christ. And I remember just sitting there thinking, what in the world is he thinking about? And what in the world is he even talking about? And um, and then he ended up becoming a good friend. He used to go to Bible studies every week with him at Starbucks. There were a few Starbucks in Seattle. So, yeah, somebody that I could relate to who also was admitting to me that he was still struggling with drinking. And Trish at the time by this time was saying you're an alcoholic and I remember telling her don't ever call me that don't ever call me an alcoholic right pride but I I definitely was coming to terms with the fact that I was having a hard time I remember thinking could I go two days and not drink and like if I'm really honest the answer is no so anyway that's what was going on
0: for a year Stu kept attending church and his community group he was definitely not a Christian and wasn't afraid to say so But the claims of Christ were certainly intriguing. Then in 2004, Stu was hired to be the CFO of another tech startup and manage their IPO. But if he thought the process was going to be like any other time he'd taken a company public, he was terribly wrong. This time, God was going to have a say. Which you'll hear about right after the break. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compel. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of the Apple Podcasts top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry and includes skits, real life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Stu Fullendorf had been attending church and his community group for about a year now and had engaged in some really interesting conversations about Christianity. And while he previously would have always described himself as a firm atheist, his heart was definitely softening. He was now the CFO of another tech company, and this one had some serious financial backing, including Atlas Venture, Sequoia Capital, and Kleiner Perkins, really heavy hitters in the investment world. Stu was in the process of taking the company public, which was his third time managing an IPO. The two weeks before an IPO frequently involve a whirlwind tour around the world to major investment hubs to meet with banks and institutional
1: investors, which is where we pick up the story. So we're kicking off the, the European leg of this. We went out to eat in London. London's a big money center. It's a big deal to get shareholders from London. And we were were walking down the street, and I don't remember who it was, but one of the guys from Morgan Stanley said, see that window up there, the one with the yellow star? That's where Marx wrote his manifesto to the Labour Party, basically his communist manifesto. Literally, up in that window is a yellow star. It still is there if you go there. And uh, one of the people said, kind of chuckled like, you know, can you imagine if communism, you know, here we are on the IPO roadshow, right? Kind of all chuckling about it. And then one of the guys, I don't even know who, cause there was probably about eight of us in the group said, well, he had one thing, right? That religion is the opiate of the masses, right? And then I remember our, our CEO, Steve Goldman, who was culturally Jewish, but a non-believer said, yeah, that's right. And I kind of chuckled and said, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, then the limousine came and picked us up and took us back we were staying at the Savoy Hotel in London and uh, usually I would have gone to the bar um, there was a guy Brett Goodwin who was our head of marketing at our company he said hey you want to have a nightcap and I said nah, i do not tonight I just don't feel like it tonight so I went back to the hotel room and just kind of sit down in this lambskin chair and started thinking about that conversation well remember this is about three years after I went to church for the first time in life groups and counseling and Bible studies and all of these and and I looked at the wet bar and thought eh, I'll have a couple drinks and eh, not tonight and then I was sitting there and it was like I felt this wave literally a warm wave and I remember thinking what would the world be like without Jesus um, and I literally sat there and I remember just like we just thinking yeah the world's depraved now I'm learning that concept yeah the world's broken but what would the world be like without Jesus Christ? And yeah, uh, I just remember at the time thinking, I've had this all wrong. Um, it was like a Lutheran moment for me. I was like, I, I can't believe how wrong I've been on this. And so I, I just started to weep and like, Lord, I, I can't believe how rebellious I've been, uh, how how wrong I've been about this, forgive me. I believe, I believe that your Lord, I believe your savior, I, I'm sorry, I repent. Um, I literally started thinking about all the rebellion and then I had this sense of like relief and, and the yoke lifted from my shoulders and at the same time I had this like this feeling of sin, of how overcome, overwhelmed I've been by sin in my life. And then I laid on the floor and literally just wept and wept and wept. And yeah, if somebody would have come in, they would have thought it was a complete breakdown in many ways it was, and just wept and said, I, I, I'm i so sorry, I repent, I believe, I believe. I got up, I didn't sleep, and I got up the next morning and got showered up and put my suit on. And. We went to our first meeting, our first meeting in London. And I will remember, like, again, like, as yesterday, Barry Feidelman, who was the venture capitalist for Atlas Ventures out of Boston was there, we happened to be in London, maybe he was even following us around on the road show, And I gave my part of the the, the roadshow pitch, right? The numbers and the graphs and all this stuff. And Barry walked up to me afterwards, he's like, are you okay? Because you seem like like melancholy totally different. And I said, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay, Barry. And I was okay, but I was certainly different. That night in the hotel room happened 16
0: years ago. And Stu firmly believes that God orchestrated every event leading up to that moment. The church, the sermons, the community group, the Bible studies, and even his wife's prayers.
1: But there's no question that God had a sovereign plan. I mean, like the Apostle Paul, right, who gets trained on all these languages and is going to be the high priest and then gets knocked on his rear on the way to Damascus. And next thing you know, he's the great evangelist. You know, if it wasn't for his prior experiences, if you will, and and, the th- and his killing of Christians and so forth, uh, I don't believe, deeply, don't, we don't even have to say don't believe. It's true because God, it's God's sovereign plan that he would have been as effective as a church planter and evangelist and as committed as he was without going through those difficult, evil, evil experiences that God even uses in his perceptive and decretive will and mm. using those kinds of experiences to lead us forward and build his kingdom. And, uh, yeah, that's good theology by the way. And then kind of how it all sort of accumulates is we ended up being in, um, New York for the pricing meeting right on wall street. And so we have our, where everybody gets together and say, here's your your range for the IPO price is seven to nine dollars I think we priced it slightly above the range because there was a big demand for the stock I think we priced like 950 and that meant I don't know 130 million for the company of capital and then we went out and had what's called the closing party at a dear friend of mine who's no longer a friend unfortunately but was a part of Solomon Brothers and they took me to a strip club and I remember sitting there thinking, this is just ridiculous. Yeah, you because know, that's kind of what you did. You know, you went out to dinner and then went to a strip club, like the uh, scores. And still remember sitting there thinking nah, this is like, I don't even want to do this. This is crazy. And then we got up, rang the NASDAQ Bell the next morning and the stock opened and it went from 950 to 23 bucks a share on opening price. And I saved them December 7th, 2006. That's when I had my <laughs> right, my Lutheran salvation. Pearl Harbor Day, 2006. And it was, I don't know, 10 days later or so when the stock priced and started trading publicly. And so at 23 bucks a share, I think I think it was like, I had 15, 12 or 15 million on paper, I can't remember. Everybody's all excited, CEO, I'm throwing high fives. Everyone's saying, millionaires. Millionaires you know? throwing high fives, right? And I remember standing there thinking to myself, this is the third time I've done this, and this is like, means nothing to me. And I'm not saying that out of piety or lack of gratitude or whatever, but I do, I remember just like it was yesterday standing there thinking this means nothing. This means nothing to me. Um, is the third time I've done this. And you know, one company went bankrupt. The other one got bought and you know, blah, blah, blah. So then, you know, everybody's all happy. And then middle of the day we get on our G 10. And so we fly all the way from New York to Seattle, where we were going to have our a big party with all the employees in Belltown of Seattle. Uh, the party was all set up. We were going to fly in, you know, the, the executives, the three of us, four of us, whatever. We're going to talk to the employees from the balcony of the restaurant. We had the whole the whole restaurant leased out. All the way back though, from New York to Seattle, I remember drinking my double Tankarays on the rocks with a twist of lemon and an onion and looking out the window as everybody else is all happy and everybody literally just reflecting out the window thinking i don't even want to do this i mean this is crazy like i don't know where this is going to lead i was very reflective on that trish came and picked me up at the um limburg field whatever and she drove us to the ipo party because i was already i had, had too many to drink even on the plane and then we go and And I gave a big whooping speech from the balcony of the restaurant and then drank way too much. And Trish sort of felt disgusted, she'll tell you this, as we're driving home and we've got 13, 15 million on paper, and she's driving home just like rolling her eyes, just disgusted over the fact that I went to the IPO party and had too much to drink, which was a common occurrence. And yeah, and that's that's my salvation story. And then after that, um, life got really hard. It just got really hard.
0: The IPO was a massive success and the company was now valued at $1.4 billion. But for once, the money, success, and business weren't on Stu's mind. Instead, God was. And now that Stu believed that God was real and that Jesus was his son, how would that change his life?
1: So I was afraid of what, of what would happen. I felt a sense of joy and confusion and... Happiness and repentance, contrition over being 43 years old, there was a lot to work through. I didn't get anybody who listens to this. Let me just encourage people to think that there is no normative salvation story, if you will. Of course, the normative aspect of it is when the Holy Spirit moves in and will save those who are his. But how how, and when we do that, um, that, that happens to us is is not normative. Like we all have different stories. In my case, though, since I was at a very high level and had just reached sort of the pinnacle of career, I was, I was anxious and concerned about how becoming a Christian would impact me. Would it, would it change my personality, right? I mean, I'm dealing with these things. Would it, would it change my worldview so much that I would lose my job? Would, it, um, would I have the same passion? And so I I did not tell Trish. Additionally, I felt a sense of guilt because I was an, I was an alcoholic, I was an addict. And so, uh, yes, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And yes, good things started to happen. But very difficult things were part of this too. I I, I realized that many of my worldviews were now gonna change uh, I, if, I, if I were gonna believe in the inerrant, infallible, and, and truthful word of God, that many of the views that I had were, were not true. And so this is a process. I never told Trish, though, she'll tell you that within the year, she could tell that I was no longer hostile to, to the things I was hostile at before. I, again, these are the things that were um, like child play to me, were no longer interesting to me. I was starting to become a man. And so she could see things changing, but I refused to tell her what happened because I didn't want to be committed. And I, I was afraid of what might happen to me. It was about 2 years later where I was finally telling somebody what happened. You were telling someone else about your your yeah. your salvation experience. Yeah, I was giving them my testimony in essence and Trish was hearing me give my testimony and she's like, "Is that what happened in London?" I said, "Yeah," and I've been hesitant to tell you because I wasn't sure, you know, how this would all work out. So that's how, that's how it was. It wasn't me sitting down with Trish and saying, I had this unbelievable experience in London and I just can't wait to get on the horse and go out and, you know, minister to people and all this stuff. It was, what is going to happen here? How is God going to do this? You know, now I was going to church every Sunday and she could tell that things were changing and she'll tell you that.
0: Stu was finally out of the closet. He was a Christian and wasn't afraid to admit it. But the one thing that he was still afraid to admit publicly was that he had a serious drinking problem, so severe that it was going to push him to the verge of death. Coming up right after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliott, whose husband was murdered by the Aca tribe in Ecuador but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school, and there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations, and their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12 month money back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back. About a year after the IPO, things majorly soured, and Stu and the CEO were both fired from the company. He cashed out all of his stocks and bought a wine distributorship right as the 2008 recession hit. Stu was now a Christian, but was also a full-on alcoholic and was only getting worse.
1: Yeah, it was actually, and then after putting the money into the wine distributorship, the, the business going under, by 2008 and 2009, the business was in mighty shape bad shape. I had put all my money in there and kept putting money in because I didn't know how long the recession was going to last. And then in 2010, I could not stay sober. I, it got to the point now where I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I, w- I would have vodka or, or wine next to my bed, and I would drink just to go back to sleep again. I would get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and I would get a bottle of wine out of the warehouse. It's just a wino and a drunk. And that's where I was. And I was suffering. So you're talking about um, it used to be through celebration. I was suffering through losing my identity, losing my money, having a hard time surrendering to God's will, having newspaper articles written, um, struggling mightily with pride. So one of the big um, things that had a huge impact on me wasn't just the Bible, but when I read it chapter 8 and section 2 of mere Christianity about the great sin pride, And CS Lewis said, you know, pride makes all other sins seem like mere flea bites. I was struggling so mightily with my own pride. And so all of this was going on where God was purifying the gold. And finally, Trish went off on vacation without me. I went on a big bender. She got back and I was on the verge of dying um, from the alcoholism like alcohol poisoning. Yeah, in fact, I would spent the whole week just shutting myself in. I had a friend Todd Tarburger came over and said, "I'm I'm come, Trish told me that you may be doing this, so I'm coming over to get you." And I'm like, "Todd, wild horses couldn't drag me away." And he's like, "Okay, pick your, you, know, you make your bed, you lie in it." Trish got back, bottles all over the place, a horror story, and she took me in I blew point 4. So if you don't know, 0.45 is death, 0. 0, 0.08 is DUI. I blew point 4, so very close to death and older, I can't do this anymore. I, I First of all, drunkenness is a sin. But also, I'm in bondage to this, mighty bondage. And so I went to rehab. And we called uh, Lakeside Milam. And I got a bed and went, went to rehab. And that was September of 2010. And it was an amazing experience for me. It was a secular rehab. I had my Bible. And I checked into rehab. And they said, no, you can't have your Bible. We do the big book from AA. And I said, no Bible, no me. I'm not checking in unless I have my Bible. And they said, okay, you can keep your Bible. Well, after five days of detox, um, I started getting up and having a 5:30 in the morning personal Bible study of my my own Bible study. So I'd five, six, seven days, just say no, Paul, was a long, I don't, I don't know how many years it had been since I had been sober for five or six or seven days. And I'm like sober for five days after going through detox. And then seven days later, I'm starting to read my Bible. Well, then I started having people at 5.30 coming up to me. There were 96 people in the rehab center. And I remember this one guy, his name was Ken, came up and said, are you reading the Bible? I said, I am. He said, do you mind if I join you? I said, no, not at all. So after the second week, Trish would show up for the family day in rehab. And I said, uh, you know, there's no Bibles in here. So when you come, would you sneak Bibles in? (laughs) Smuggle Bibles into rehab. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And so she's like, of course. So she would come with her bag and she would like give me these Bibles. Well, what ended up happening after the next two and a half weeks is I had 19 people joining me for this 530 Bible study. I'm just trying to get sober. And they're joining me like for for this Bible study. And it was amazing. And I think it, I read my my journal now, my diary of when I was in rehab, and I, I realized how profoundly impactful that was and how God was working in my life then. So I got out of rehab and within two weeks relapsed, realized I cannot be in the wine business <laughs> and be a an al- uh, recovering alcoholic. By this point, I'm saying, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Yes, I'm going to AA meetings. Um, I'm, you know, all of this. So after getting out of rehab. And then it was in December 3rd of 2010 is the last drink I've had. So whatever that's been now, 12 years. That was a really tough three three months. But again, I would just encourage anybody who's, who's struggling with addiction that a lot of times relapses like that are a part of recovery. It doesn't mean that your life's coming to an end. It can be the hardest time period of your own recovery, is that time that you get out of rehab and then relapse. I'm not saying you have to. You shouldn't. But if you do, understand that that often is a key aspect of your own recovery. So then, at that point, I realized I couldn't be in the wine business. I walked away. I cashed out all my stock options, uh, walked away from all of it. After the 08 recession and 010, we literally had nothing. Got sued by the Securities and Exchange Commission because of stuff that had happened at Isilon. Spent all our money on all that. And by the time it was all said and done, and I ended up going to a seminary, we had nothing. We had lost all of it. All the millions, gone. Gone and got everything back. Um, because by 2011, at the end of all that, I was so on fire for Christ. I remember even sitting in the SEC trial, which is a federal trial, thinking to myself, I can't believe how connected I feel to Christ and the disciples through this as I'm being persecuted. And it just so happened that um, I was being accused of things that I hadn't done. I'd done a lot of things like getting DUIs and other things. But in that case, it was even more profound because I hadn't done it. And um, we had to even make a decision, Trish and I, about whether we would even settle out of court or go to trial. And we decided that I would go to trial over it. So all of that was profoundly transformative. At the end of the trial, I ended up not being found responsible and all this, but I I see this, I didn't really care. (laughs) Um, I just was on fire for the Lord and yeah. And by the time I got done with seminary in 2014, 15, whatever, um, yeah, I had my MDiv and, um, started pastoring and here we are, um, seven, eight years later, uh, at this growing church of God's saints and believers and it's my story and all, it's my story. I appreciated what you had to say that there is no normative
0: salvation testimony. God works in totally different ways, right? And some people are immediately saved from their addictions and other people, God's like, hey, that's something you're gonna lean into me even more to work through that together.
1: Yeah, I yeah, like some of these that will say, I was immediately relieved of, of this. I'm like, praise God, oh, that is so awesome. Yeah. And for me, it was like this kind of was grinding longer sanctification of having to get through the issues. And I think in some ways it was very healthy because I had to work through, you know, worldview issues and virtue issues and value issues and moral issues and the- theological issues. And and in some ways I needed that pain, that struggling to get through that yeah. so that I could come up with, with what I believe God has led is a pretty deep biblical understanding of how he works.
0: Before we wrapped up, Stu told me one more story that I just had to
1: share. It took place after he was saved but before he was sober i was going to to church and i just had this really strong feeling that i needed to get baptized right of course i mean it's one of the key sacraments of the church of course i should get baptized so the night before i went to bed and i had this unbelievably realistic dream i i you know and take this for what it is it's true in the dream my business partner from the wine business John Bryant was there and he was giving the benediction at my funeral and i remember like hovering over my body in the stream and at the end of the funeral there's a bagpipe player playing amazing grace that comes in and it's like a lot of funerals and playing amazing grace well again i you know rock and roll church i mean you know seattle seattle grunge music worship right not That's, a bagpipe place no 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 bagpipe players there no unless they could screaming lead refs off the backpipes, But anyway, I get baptized at the end of the Easter service. And I'm one of, I don't know, 10 or so. Um, and then I sit down. And well, it just so happened at my baptism service, my dad and his girlfriend at the time were there. My kids were sitting on the other side. And Trish was sitting all the way across from me. And John Bryant, who had a disabled little girl and his wife Elaine, showed up for the baptism. And at the end of the service, I was the first one to get baptized. They baptized like nine more. The side doors open up, and through there comes a bagpipe player walking down the middle aisle for Easter Sunday playing Amazing Grace. I'm like, this feels really familiar. This is like deja vu, to put it in paganistic terms. And then I'm like, no, wait a minute. John's here, the bagpipe player. And I leaned over, and Trish is sitting like four or five people down, and she's like looking at me like this with tears, like running down her face. I'm like, oh my god, oh my God. Right? I just realized that I had, like, dreamed this. So um, afterwards, I went out, and, and I'm like, can you believe that? I mean, that, that just blows my mind. It's the first time I'd ever seen bagpipe church. And my daughter walks over, who was very bright, and said, of course, Dad. It's your funeral. It's your baptism. The old is dead. The new has come, right? It's you're dying to your old self. As our
0: conversation came to a close, I asked you one last question. What advice would he give to Christians listening to the story right now who are actively struggling with substance addiction?
1: I get it. Uh, I understand that it's, it's definitely a crux of despair for you, that there's a bondage that comes from drug and alcohol use. We can be Christian and still struggling with these issues, just like we struggle with other sins. You know, some people struggle with their kids' performance. Some struggle with porn. Some struggle with their career. Some struggle with identity based on their balance sheet, and those kind of things. Alcohol and, and drugs are even more profound in the sense that there is a physical addiction. And porn's like that, too. I mean, there's this, you know, chemical chemical, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it literally changes the chemistry. So number one, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Rest in the sovereignty um, and perseverance of a loving God. Having said that, in the long run, it's really important to come to terms with that because I could not glorify God and be a drunk. So when you fall deeply in love with Christ and the Holy Spirit fills your heart, it gets to the point where the overriding desire has to be for for Jesus, it has to be for for the living God, and we cannot be an alcoholic or drug addict. You cannot glorify God and enjoy Him fully, being in bondage to drugs and alcohol. That empty hole has to get filled with the joy of the Lord, and it's hard. You have to pray. You have to you know have fellowship. You have to worship. You have to serve others. I mean, it's step twelve in AA. You, you have to focus your life in putting the tethers of the spiritual disciplines of Christ in place. That's why Jesus gave us the model. That will lead you to a life of sobriety. I think it's really important for those of you who are struggling out there to understand that God's hand is in it. Just give it to him and let him make you into who you should be and who God wants you to be.
0: Stu, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, Paul. Even as a kid, I've always been interested in business, and maybe that's why I found Stu's journey so interesting. He basically lived every entrepreneur's dream, successfully launching not one, not two, but three different companies on the US Stock Exchange, and one of them with a billion dollar valuation. But what did that gain him? Nothing. In fact, he was enslaved to alcohol and his own desires and could not break free. Stu may have been in the business of making money, But fortunately for him, God is in the business of saving souls. Two things jumped out at me. First, Trish stayed married to Stu, even though by his own mission, he was a terrible husband and father. But Trish was focused on her holiness and not her happiness. And God eventually used her life witness to bring her husband to faith. And second, Stu attended that church community group for three years as a non-Christian. And God used regular people in this group to begin shifting his worldview. And the members weren't all wealthy or influential or had PhDs or philosophy degrees or CFOs. They were just normal, regular people, like that 80-year-old truck driver. Today, Stu is the senior pastor at Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado. And if you're nearby on a Sunday morning, come on by. If you'd like to learn more about Stu's journey, you can read his book, Wall Street to the Well, which we'll link to in our show notes. There's a lot more to his story and he covers it all in his book. And one of our listeners this week will win an autographed copy of his book when you enter our drawing in the show notes at compelledpodcast.com. Take five seconds and ask yourself, who do I know who would be encouraged by Stu's testimony? If you know someone, send it to them. You never know how God might use it. We release all of our stories for free, but they're not free to create. If you have been blessed by Compelled and you want to help us continue making more stories just like this one, then you can become a monthly Patreon supporter. Get started at compelledpodcast.com and click donate. Finally, if you're looking for a podcast app on your cell phone, then I would suggest our sponsor CastBox. Their app is easy to use and lets you download episodes ahead of time to listen to when you're offline. And it's free. Learn more at castbox.fm. This episode was edited by Will Jackson. Our sound engineer is Zach Fowler and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's story with Lauren Smith, a Christian mother who felt called to adoption and foster care, but had no idea how many children God would place in her home. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. We ended up fostering about 120 children in addition to our 20 permanent children. And I think I long for the day when I go to heaven and I see the lives that God has allowed us to touch. One last thing before I go, if you'd like to meet up this year in 2024— I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th,